there's some some additional photos of uh, a fire captain, Donnie Upchurch, and a firefighter, Billy Dunlevy. And as they're coming away from the building, uh, they find an American flag and they're putting it up. And you don't see in the picture, but in reality, there's hordes of people, uh, as well as first responders, that are watching this. And they just started shouting USA and going crazy. And, and Billy raises his fist up in the air in kind of solidarity to everybody. Uh, I just tell you that story and it gave me chills. Um, Welcome to the special edition of the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. For anyone who's worked in fire and emergency services for any period of time, there seems to always been one date that sticks out in your memory. For some, like the firefighters from Petersburg in episode 40 that were involved in the fire that killed Mike Goff, those dates are burned into our consciousness. But the date we all have in common is September 11th, 2001. All of our memories, experiences, and stories are different, but they all are the same. It was not only a tragic loss for the United States, it had a tremendous impact on the fire service. Over the past year when recording these episodes, I've been asking the guests about their experiences and I've cobbled them together for this episode. And as I was pulling all these clips together, I kept thinking about the lyrics to the Alan Jackson song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning on that September Day. First up, from episode 25, J.P. Jones. J.P.'s comments bring back a lot of memories of that day. And the emotions are clearly right on the surface for both of us. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? Yeah, I, I remember that. I'd just gotten off duty that morning and came home. And this is actually, this is pretty vivid memory because it, it was captivating. But I came home. I didn't have the TV on, so I didn't know what was going on at the time. You know, I, during the initial incident, I went in and I think I took a shower or something like that at the house. Um, came back. And flipped the TV on to, I still remember it was Channel 12 with um, Matt Lauer and Katie, Katie Couric. And you could see the building smoking. I was like, holy crap, man, what happened? And of course, those guys were all, and this is my home on Elm Road and over in Richmond. But, um, you know, those guys were, you know, of course, everybody's taking wild guesses of what's going on. And they're starting to figure out it was a terrorist attack. So... You know, that, that was a very vivid memory, but I do recall, um, you know, watching the, because they had a live view of the towers behind them. While they were going, well, we think it might, you know, we don't know if it's a terrorist attack, the president's been notified. <clears throat> and, you know, you see in the background, one of the towers collapsed. You know, and at, at that point, I realized, you know, you know, a bunch of our guys just died, and they didn't even notice it. You know, about 10 seconds later, they go, well, we just got where the tower collapsed because it was a live shot in the background. So that was a very vivid memory, you know. And I'm, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that. So that's, yeah. that's kind of where I was, you know, and then, of course, watch the rest. And then when a second tower collapsed, obviously, I hoped that they had evacuated 
you know, everybody that could get out, out. But, you know, um, you know, a lot of folks lost their lives that day, citizens and firefighters, police officers, and, and other public safety officials. It's been uh, 20 years and a couple of weeks, and, um, dude, it's, it's still that emotional to me, too. Um, yeah. Next up is John Pajaka from episode 37, who was serving as an ATF agent in Boston at the time, and he highlights some of the law enforcement response in the hours and days following September 11th. Well, man, it, it, it's a vivid, vivid day. Um, take the same route into the into I drive into Boston, worked at the uh, federal building in Boston. So it was a typical day, you know, traffic as usual. And uh, Massachusetts uh, Turnpike splits in two, and you kind of get off one way to go to what's called Sturro Drive um, to get to the office. And I remember sitting in traffic there and listening to the Howard Stern show. And they talked about, you know, a plane had hit the first tower. And then all of a sudden he comes and he goes, oh, man, a second plane just hit. And that's when you just, you know, you get that sinking feeling in your stomach like, all right, something's not right today. And at that time we had Nextels um, and the whole field division had him. So the, the special agent in charge just kind of hit the Nextel and says, hey, um, I just need everybody to get into the office ASAP. Um, and I was like 10 minutes out at that point, but I'm like, oh, this, this is not going to be good. And, and just when I got to the building, we had at that time, Secret Service was in the building, U.S. Customs was in the building, and you could just see, like there was a mad rush of people just not knowing what to do or where to go. And, and I just remember the security guards outside going, all right, well, looks like anything federal may be a target. And now all of a sudden, like the, the, the barriers that weren't up before, like everybody's like, all right, well, how do we put barriers up real quick? I don't think we're going to get them done today, but you, you, you could just sense the panic in, in people. Um, and, and then we got kind of dispatched real quick to uh, Logan Airport because two of the flights originated out of Logan. And oh, I could wow. just remember uh, being at Logan Airport all day long. All flights were grounded. Um, they brought in Mass State Police, every canine that they can get, and any plane that was grounded was searched top to bottom. And then you, you don't realize like little things like, okay, so we're at the airport now and we're going to search planes, but we're doing them with the canines. Well, after about four hours, as much as we're okay, those canines are exhausted. Yeah, they work. Yeah, They work. Um, they're working more than we're working. So so it was, it was a long day that turned into night that turned into the next day that turned into the day after. And I can remember being at the airport and leaving the airport. They had gotten us hotels in Boston because they didn't want us driving back and forth because we've been working so long. And knowing that all flights were grounded, we're, we're driving to the hotel and we remember hearing an airplane coming in and we're like, you know, all of a sudden you get that fear, like, What's a plane doing? And it was a federal flight that, you know, they were just bringing stuff in. But the, the sense of panic in that here it is, the city's all quiet. Nobody's out. We're making our way to a hotel. It's eerily quiet. And all of a sudden, knowing planes are grounded. And after what happened with four planes, you hear a plane for the first time. You get a sinking feeling. It was it was weird. Oh, wow. Weird time. Well, were you guys just looking at the um, kind of the planes that came in? Anything that was there, anything that was grounded that didn't even take off, 
just to see if there were any any other flights that were preparing to take off with anything on it. So you weren't you weren't really looking at those four planes that had already taken off and were involved. So no, I, I, no, no. Yes, and the FBI was yeah working that that side of the case. You were working Correct. at it from a preventative maintenance preventative side to keep the next one from happening. Right, and if there since the planes are grounded, was anything on these planes that could have been used? Wow. And if there was going to be, obviously, you know, there would have been some great evidence in that. When I sat down with Steve Korb and Steve Meyenberg in episode 26 to talk about the Richmond Flying Squad, I had no idea how closely these two were tied to the Emmets in New York and to the people of FDNY. So how about you, Steve Korb? Where, uh, where were you on September 11th? I was actually on duty in Miami Beach Fire Department riding Engine 3, and we were just pulled into fire headquarters to fuel up engine, and the phone rang. Um, told us what had happened with the first plane and gone in. And then we all walked into the watch office. And as we were sitting there watching, we saw the second plane and all the, all my crew just looked at each other. I don't even think we said a word. We just looked at each other trying to process what had actually happened. And, um, I was actually working with a guy, one of my uh, crewmates, uh, Liam Otto, his brother was FDNY and his brother was supposed to get off the night before. But, uh, long story short, it turns out he ended up um, passing away in that one of the building collapses. Um, so did he get off the night before and go back? Or he, he, he was still in the still station. They, I think they turned their tour at 9 a.m. So mm -hmm. they always hung around. So he jumped on squad one. He was a captain of squad one, um, Captain Amato. So battalion chief at that point ordered us all back to the station. Uh, he said, secure all the stations. We're not sure what's going on. Do not go out unless you're dispatched to something. So we all went back to the station and about uh, two days or the next morning, um, my partner Lee found out that his brother was missing. Yeah. So, yeah. How long before uh, he knew kind of the, the full scope of the story? How long did it take? He, I think he realized at that point, but he said, you know, Jimmy's missing. Um, and it was about uh, two weeks when they found his remains. And we all went up and attended the funeral at that point. So. Um, did, did Miami Dade send a, one of the USAR teams up there? Or did they I believe it was Dade County Dade at that County. time. The Task Force One okay. went up, yes. Uh -huh. so, what about you, Steve? So I was a lieutenant in the uh, volunteer fire department in Long Island, West Babylon. I was actually working part-time a couple days a week from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. as an EMT. Um, that morning, uh, we had done the 800 checklist, which is you know checking over the ambulance, and I was with the, my partner, this guy Chris, and he, I looked at the date, and I said, oh, 9-11, great day for an emergency. So um, was out on a, on a call at nine o'clock. I had my regular job and worked for an insurance company. I met somebody I was training. So I was on my way back. I took the first responder car, was going back to the station and my brother from Texas um, called me and asked me where I was, what I was doing. I told him, he says, you need to get back, see what's going on. By the time I got back, second plane was hitting. Um, still went to work. Uh, I worked in Queens. Uh, I was on Metropolitan Avenue in Queens, which you can see the Twin Towers from Metropolitan Avenue, um, and had my scanner in the car. I was listening to the whole thing and saw and heard tower collapse. Went back to the office, went back to Long Island, went back to the station, um, got on the engine, and responded into Cunningham Park, I think it was, which is... Um, right on the Clearview Expressway in Queens and mustered up with a ton of other fire companies in Long Island. And uh, we were assigned to engine 319, 
which is right off of uh, Metropolitan Avenue, exactly where I was. Um, so we stayed there, I'm gonna say 36 hours, something like that, and responded to a couple calls for them because they had nobody. You know, the city fire department was completely in this, you know. Because yeah, you, so you guys were actually backfilling at the NY. Yeah, I, I, which I never thought I'd wow. ever see that. You know, just being in a city fire station, it was, you know, it was like a dream. It was weird because it was not something that you would think was going to ever happen. Um, and uh, we ended up switching out and uh, went back to the city a couple times uh, with the truck company um, into Manhattan. But that was basically my story. Uh, similar to Steve, I actually have a, a couple friends on FDMY. A guy I worked with at the insurance company who I trained with uh, became a city firefighter, and I worried about him, good friend of mine. Uh, and his brother, uh, Lee, which I wasn't thinking about because we're friends with Jim. Jim was in Florida on vacation. I forgot he had left for vacation. Uh, his brother, Lee, was an engine 235 and, and, and died in the towers. Oh, that too. Yep. September 11th not only impacted those of us who were on the job then, but those who were in high school, college, and already serving in the military. Jesse, PJ, and Chase are three of my jiu-jitsu training partners who were on episode 38 and shared their experiences of that day and how it shaped their lives. Yeah, high school, 10th grade, I'm in social studies class, and they um, stopped the class and brought a TV, one of those TVs on wheels, and brought it in, and um, and there it was. Just had the, uh, in real time, the plane hitting the towers, and I don't think I was old enough to really appreciate what was going on and really understand what was going on. Um, all I knew is there, we didn't have to do class the rest of the day, and, <laughs> you know. Did but um, looking back on it now, it's kind of crazy how, like, you know, they they really did just stop the whole day, stop what we were doing, and everybody was just kind of sitting there in a moment of silence for, I don't know, an hour or two hours. And But, you know, you don't really really understand the magnitude of what's going on when you're in either 10th grade. You're just kind of. Do you think like, that had something to do with you going in the military after high school? Oh, yeah. I think, um, I think it did, you know, because it's just. Well, first I was I was lost to get out of high school. I didn't know what to do. But that was one of those things where um, after talking to a recruiter and, of course, they, they pushed the whole, you know, the whole 9-11 event and, you know, got me thinking about, you know, what am I doing and how can I serve and all that good stuff. And uh, You were in the Army? Yeah, in the Army. And um, did that for like a six-by-two kind of thing and joined the infantry. Uh, did a couple of tours. And... Uh, yeah, but it's crazy to think you talk about nine eleven, how all that everything that's happened in my life really did happen because of that one day. Because I never would have joined the military, military if we weren't at war. Because I wanted to fight, you know, and we had never been at war if that yeah, that man. hadn't happened. So, so uh, yeah, it's one wild. Of, one of them defining moments. How about you, yeah. PJ? Where were you? Uh, sitting in my buddy's Jeep out in front of the PX. I was already in. The so you were already in the Marine Corps. Yep. It, uh, we were listening to Howard Stern or some trash talk radio show and thought it was a joke. We got up to the office where we were working, and it was on the TV. Where, what base were you at? At the time, we were, uh, we were actually we were on an Air Force base, Goodfellow Air Force Base. So you had, you had the good life going. It was going Air good. Country, <laughs> country club. <laughs> life, life was good. What, did, uh, what happened to your unit? I mean, did, you, did they pull everybody back, put it on alert? Uh, they, locked, they locked the base down. You weren't really allowed to leave. Um, it... Uh, Things were crazy for the first first couple of days, I guess, and then uh, 
you know, when, I guess once they sort of figured out what was going on and the, the things kind of eased up a little bit, but that uh, you know, the whole world changed just like everybody else's after that. And then you wound up going on a couple of trips over Everything changed. Too. Everything changed. Yep. 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 Chase. I was in sociology class, sociology 101 at Longwood University. And I guess the the first plane had hit about the time that I was getting into class. And it took a few minutes for them to kind of realize what was happening. They did the whole same thing. They put it up on the TV prompts that they had. And we watched the second plane hit and as soon as that happened pretty much everybody knew that it was a terrorist attack it wasn't just a accident at that point uh it was very surreal to see everything everybody's reaction that was happening around me i mean i was in a sociology class so i was looking at everybody that that was around me to see what was going on yeah it was it was really kind of interesting there were some people that didn't really care at first and and then the second plane hit and then everybody's attitude just completely changed and everybody was they didn't blink at the tv for an hour or so uh after that they basically said yeah we're not doing class day classes are canceled all that kind of stuff and me and a buddy uh who was my roommate at the time uh he had a vehicle so we got in the vehicle and we hauled back to ashland and i went back to the firehouse so you were volunteering yeah i was volunteering at that time did uh did did ashland get or hanover get activated for anything to go up uh nobody ever got officially activated but they had all had the uh the the low call out of everybody get to the stations you're gonna if they call for us to go anywhere like we're sending as many people as we can you're ready type to, of thing. ready to pull the trigger yeah we to. i think we had 30 people at the firehouse by the time that i got there it was it was probably close to two or three o'clock before i was able to get back to the firehouse well how many is that is that like half of the department at the time or uh, that, that was probably half of our fire company at oh, least at that point and i mean we had enough to we had enough to staff every unit that we had and then two engines a truck a rescue uh brush jeep i mean we, all the auxiliary ready. vehicles i mean ev- there wasn't an empty seat that didn't have a body in it. yeah that that wasn't gonna have somebody going somewhere in it but it was that day, one of the things that struck me was that it was that clear, crisp day, like great weather, but it felt like it was in a, so, a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Like everything was just quiet. The cars weren't going. You look up, like after a while, everybody talks about how all the plane traffic went away and everything that day for the rest of the day it was just so quiet nobody moved it was that was one of the things that struck me about that day i can still remember like the silent pieces that were out there i mean there's 
Nobody was going anywhere. Everybody was home. Nobody was going to the store. It was, it was like everybody was just hunkered down. The experience of John Moon from Pittsburgh, who was on episode 45, was interesting because his pre-planning for his own family really had an impact on the first few hours of that fall morning. His contingency planning is a good lesson for all of us to keep in mind. Robbie, I was actually teaching a CPR class at a senior citizen center. Uh, I was actually teaching the uh, senior care workers uh, CPR uh, in the event that something would happen to a lot of any of the residents that came there doing a day-to-day basis. And while I was teaching the workers, the actual uh, residents were sitting out in a lobby uh, conference room area, uh, and they actually were responding to what was actually going on at that particular time. So I'm actually teaching this class and I hear more or less a lot of commotion going on out of the room. So I stopped teaching and went out and I looked at the residents and they all were focused on a large screen television that was uh, there in the room. And uh, that was at the time that I saw the uh, very first plane uh, going to the World Trade Center. And uh, it just put me in a state of shock at the present time. And uh, come to find out that there was mass panic throughout the country uh, to the point where they were uh, letting workers go home from work early uh, because they didn't really know uh, the magnitude of what was going on. And the first thing I thought of when I saw that is how could I call my wife? Because she was working in downtown Pittsburgh in one of these large office buildings. Mm-hmm. And uh, as fate would have it, I couldn't get in touch with her. So that was my panic. And uh, obviously we cut the, the training short and uh, I got in my car and, you know, which had the red lights and the sirens and all of that get up on it. And uh, I started heading into downtown only to find out that they had kind of closed that area off to traffic because they were evacuating the majority of the buildings. And uh, subsequently, she and I had mapped out a plan that if I couldn't get her to pick her up from work because I was out on a call or whatever, that she would leave on her own and cross the bridge and catch the bus on the other side of the bridge would drop her off directly in front of our apartment. That's exactly what she did. And uh, so she uh, ended up calling me to try and find out whether I knew what was going on. And I'm saying, I'm trying to get it. She said, well, I'm home. So I actually breathed that sigh of relief. And, um, you know, that that's forever etched in my memory. Uh, and you're talking about... Uh, 20 plus years ago. All over the country as we watch the events in New York at the Pentagon and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, local responders understandably didn't know what was coming next. Rick Birch from episodes 27 and 28 was the fire chief in Roanoke, Virginia at the time that day, and he along with every other agency was preparing for the worst. I was in my office and uh, doing routine stuff, and one of the uh, deputy chiefs came in and said, Chief, hey, you need to come here and see this. I guess somebody had called him and we turned the TV on in the conference room. 
And uh, I guess like everybody would just sit there in shock. Um, it was very shortly after that, a county administrator called the police chief and myself in to his office and uh, everything was just very chaotic. Nobody knew what was gonna be next. Uh, I guess we, like a lot of other people, was planning, well, do we need to do this? Do we, we was worried about a fuel supply? Was something gonna happen to a fuel supply? Was something gonna happen to electricity? I mean, a thousand things just went through your mind after the craziness of what you just saw in, in New York and Pennsylvania and the Pentagon. So it was, uh, it was just a come together and everybody try to piece together what you've seen and what the probabilities are. And at the time, it was it was wide open. Was it, were you up in Roanoke by then? Yes, I was in Roanoke. My father was actually visiting with me, and uh, he was at home, uh, at my home, and I was able to give him a quick call and tell him just to turn the TV on. And I didn't really get a chance to get back probably 7 o'clock at night before I had a chance to get back to him and, and go back home and see him and talk to him about it. Did uh, did you guys in Roanoke wind up sending anybody or mobilizing or getting ready to uh, send troops up to at least p- toward the Pentagon? No, we you know we of course we thought about it, but that request never came. We we did not send anybody. There was a segment on sixty minutes about two or three weeks ago, and the first arriving battalion chief. I'm sorry, I don't recall his name there. He actually had a film crew with him that day filming, I guess, his routine or some things that he was doing. And it showed them talking on a street corner, and you could hear that first plane, and then they all looked up and said, that's very low. And that photographer got them and the plane hitting the building. All of it, I mean, that footage right away. Wow. And then, of course, they packed up and went straight there, and he was the uh, – he was a battalion, first battalion chief on the scene in, in charge. And that film crew was with him. So, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of documentaries about what happened, but this was really excellent. It was excellent. It uh, told his story, and it really told the stories of a lot of others. His brother was actually a lieutenant in one of the engine companies, and uh, when they was given assignments out, he said that, uh, you know, he gave assignment to his brother, and they just looked at each other, stared at each other for a few minutes, and he said, "We both knew that knew what was going on. What was going on? What would probably happen?" But so, what happens when an event like September 11th actually shuts down the service you were assigned to provide? Frank Chen was a guest for episode 31, and talked about how the EMS MedFlight program was impacted by the shutting down of all non-military aviation in the days following. I remember that day well. Yeah, yeah, that was. We were over at MedFlight. Yeah. So tell me about tell me about September 11th for you guys while you were on duty on that flight. Where we all got together for our um, meeting, uh, where we do QA on our runs and uh, you know, talk about and uh, go over the calls and what what was done right, what was what we can learn better. And we were in the room at um, hangar, and Postmodel pop into the door and said, "Hey, a plane just hit the bow." Um, World Trade, Center. World Trade Center, and we looked at you know how possible it is. He, you know, he gets off on this tangent, and it's and we just kind of look at each other. Right, it's probably a movie. That's what we thought, and so we uh, continued uh, wedding. He popped in again um, several minutes uh, uh, later and said, "The Pentagon just got hit by a plane," and we looked at each other and says, "Something's going on." We walked into the day room, looked at the TV. 
And I remember that day because I was looking, I saw the smoke from the World Trade Center. And I kept looking at it like it, it was surreal. I mean, is this really happening? Or, you know, is, is this a Hollywood uh, stunt, you know, people usually do. But uh, we were watching, and all of a sudden, the World Trade Center collapsed. And we went, this is real. And so on that day, they uh, uh, told everybody, just hang around. Well, we need to uh, find out what the status of the program and what we're going to be doing. Now, were the, were, were the – because as the aviation unit in the state police, you were at the hangar for the Richmond Area Aviation Unit. Did they, did they have to go out? Did they pull any uh, units mm -hmm. out? Or? At, at that time, um, they grounded everybody. So they were grounded as well. Everybody was grounded. Nobody was, would go up. No, except if you're a fighter jet, nobody go up. And if you were in the air, you had to come down. I anywhere, you had to come down. Did they have any assets up flying that day at all? Do you know? I know you, you, MedFlight was on the ground, obviously, because of the run review. But yeah, uh, so I don't think uh, any of the uh, troop trooper uh, or the helicopter was in the air at that time. Hmm. How about you know being at the airport at Chesterfield? Did, did Chesterfield Airport receive any other aircraft that they may not have received because of that order? Or do you know? I we we stayed in, in in the day room. We didn't really go outside the hangar mm -hmm. to. Look, we, we heard aircraft, but I don't know if they all came in because they were told, you know, you got to land right now, so I right. wouldn't know that. But there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of activity at the airport. Mm -hmm. So uh, essentially MedFlight shut down, and you're not flying anywhere. What did, what did you guys do at that point for at least the next couple of days? Well, the first sergeant, uh, no, no, Nichols, checked to see if we could get it in the center because, you know, if we get a MedFlight call, that's pretty serious. Right. And we were told absolutely not. Wow. Even so for – Even MedEvac was shut Even down. MedEvac, we couldn't go. So did they did they move you guys over to the to 15 to, to for yep. work days? And mm -hmm. you guys just worked a, basically an uh, ambulance crew or suppl supplement in the ambulance crew. Yeah, so some of us went over there to uh, fill in. Uh, a couple of people stayed at the hangar. Bob Luckett, who was responsible for the arrest of the D.C. serial arsonist, highlighted on episode 29, also responded to the area of the Pentagon and had a front row seat to some of what happened that day. Yeah, they, uh, but where, where were you September 11th, 2001, and what were you doing? Uh, 2001, September 11th, I was actually sitting in my office with the television on doing paperwork, and... I saw the news flash of a of a plane flying in and you know like everybody else thought it was a commercial liner that you know had had just wrecked um, didn't really think much about it was still doing paperwork and then saw the second one and of course at that particular stage I knew um, and uh, at the same time, we had the initial dispatch to the Pentagon. My station, which was Station 207, was where my office was. Um, they were first due um, on that dispatch to the Pentagon. So uh, if you see some of the pictures where you see apparatus where the piece of the Pentagon that actually came down and is like an, at an angle and is still burning. They show an engine sitting there. Well, that's engine 207 from, from 
where my office was, my station. And then there's some some additional photos of a, a fire captain, Donnie Upchurch, and a firefighter, Billy Dunlevy. And as they're coming away from the building, uh, they find an American flag and they're putting it up. And you don't see in the picture, but in reality, there's hordes of people uh, as well as first responders that are watching this and they just started shouting USA and going crazy. And, and Billy raises his fist up in the air in kind of solidarity to everybody. Uh, I just tell you that story and it gave me chills. Um, so uh, I talked to my boss on the phone. I talked to the chief fire marshal on the phone and was told um, to respond to one of the stations in the mid midtown. So our department did a total recall of everybody. <clears throat> and I was told to go there. Um, and what I ended up doing was I ended up transporting. Um, they, they had brought a couple buses up to take people to the Pentagon. And I ended up transporting um, more officers than anything in my buggy over to the Pentagon. Of course, getting into the Pentagon and getting close enough to to allow these people to get off uh, and, and not have to walk miles was um, unbelievable. I, I have some great photos that maybe I, separate from this, I should get to you because you they're pretty compelling. Anyway, went back to the city and this was this was the assignment I was given. Myself and a police detective um, by the name of Dana Lawhorn, who is now the sheriff in the city of Alexandria, were told to go to um, a hotel in about two blocks from the Potomac River. And we were told to go to the roof of that hotel. And we were, uh, we were lookouts. And we had our sidearms, our portable radios, and we had flashlights because we had no idea how long we were going to be there. And our job was to radio in anything that we saw flying up the Potomac. That was our duty assignment. Wow. And I, I'll never forget that <laughs> I saw this helicopter. Now, understand from the Potomac in Alexandria, you can basically see straight in up to the National Airport and the Pentagon and all that stuff. Um, this chopper, I assume, was a, a news chopper um, fly out over the Potomac. And the next thing we saw was, we assume, came from Andrews Air Force Base, which was right across the Potomac, was a jet. And he squatted. And when he squatted, he had his missiles pointed at this chopper. And it was like they must have been giving this guy directions about, you better get the hell out of there. You're not going to be in existence anymore. And immediately he veered off and got out of that flight path. Um, I have to tell you that in 31 years on the job in the city of Alexandria, I never thought I would ever get an assignment as that. And that was a crazy assignment. And, and, and to make matters worse, there were, there were jets that were leaving Norfolk 
and flying to come up to the Pentagon and to D.C. to protection. And we could hear the supersonic booms as they came up. And quite frankly, we didn't know what was going on. And I know at least three times while crews were actively fighting fire, they were told that there was more incoming traffic, air traffic coming into the Pentagon, and they were expecting, and they were trying to get everybody to evacuate. And all those, all those people, all those personnel knew that they, if, if there was another bomb, that they were dead. And they just kept working. Well, most of you know, the evacuation, how far were they going to get away from the building? Um, when the plane went through, I mean, and I have pictures of that circular hole, that when they came in and hit the Pentagon, it was right next to the fire station um, at the Pentagon. And the, the two firefighters that were there, both of them got burned. Um, I have pictures of their automobiles from wearing that plane hit and exploded the station of course was scorched but those two automobiles were just consumed by fire i mean and i have i have the pictures to prove it so that was my 9-11 for those of us who were at work that day in the states it was an impactful moment but mac mcfarland was in belize supporting the fire service he told us about in episode 49 Max's story tells us this was not just an incident that shook the united states yeah, i was uh I was working for Chesterfield, but I was actually in Belize. Oh, you were. So you were in Belize yeah. when September 11th hit. Yeah. Did you ever? Did you? How did you get back? I mean, what happened? What was? What was it like in Belize when that that thing happened? Um, well, uh, September 11th in Belize is right after the 10th of celebration. Um, we have a celebration on the 10th of September, and so my wife and I had um, gone down there for the entire, basically like two to three weeks, and. Um, I was resting, basically sleeping in because after a carnival, it was just like, you know, it might have a been lot. a little bit of a party. <laughs> Hell yeah. I got you. And, uh, you know, I got a, a call from my brother and he was like, um, what are you doing? I said, I'm just relaxing. He said, turn on the, uh, the, the TV. I said, which channel? I said, it doesn't matter. Just turn it on. I said, what's going on? He said, he said, America is burning. I said, what? He said, America is burning. And I, for a minute, I thought it was talking about uh, California and, and um, wildfires. Wild, yeah. yeah, that's what I initially thought. And then I turned on the news, and um, sure enough, uh, you know, everything just like you know pretty much came to a screeching halt. Basically, we were pretty much glued to the TV the entire day. Yeah. How, when were you scheduled to come back home? Because flights around the states were shut down after that huh? yeah uh, we weren't scheduled to come back until after the 21st which is the independence day for belize so um by that time um things had already started to open up yeah. but we were we were preparing for for the long haul because we thought that we may have been there for a while longer yeah. is there any any challenges getting back home once they turned the flights back on i mean nothing with tsa or coming yeah. back in the country i think yeah it became you know much more um you know the process was longer um, everything was was checked um, with a fine tooth comb, and at that point, you know, it didn't matter. Yeah. You know, it was like, okay, do what you got to do. Yeah, well, that's neat. Um, yeah, what what? So what what was what was the impression of people in Belize at the time? Where was it? I mean, did they 
were, were, was everybody else in Belize kind of watching the, the news as well, or was it how ah, that's happening in the U.S.? That's not really affecting us. No, everybody was uh, pretty much up to, um, I mean, with the hotel like um, we were staying, you know, at one point we all congregate in the, in the lobby area where they had a bigger screen TV. Um, and a lot of, you know, the workers were all uh, glued to it. I think a lot of uh, folks have um, people that live in the States. And so, um, and just the, the, the thought that, um, something like this could happen um, in the United States, you know, um, that was kind of shocking because, you know, then we kind of expose, you know, our own vulnerability um, that, you know, anything like this could happen anywhere, you know. Oh, wow. Concerns over further attacks made it a challenge for responders all across the country. While recording episode 30 with Carl Thompson, he shared some potential targets they were concerned about in Florida. My son and my wife and his wife were separating, so I was helping him move move um, his possessions out of the out of her house or out of the house. Um, and I was on the special ops team in Brevard County, and I received a, a page that a plane had just flown into the World Trade Center, and they were putting us on alert. Now, I don't know what that differs from standby or whatever, but we were told to be ready for it. And so I told my son, who was in, a diff, in a, the second pickup truck, that they had just flown a plane and we're going, it must have been a small, you know, because we had no idea. And then all of a sudden as the, the news started shifting more and more, that became the only subject you could get on the radio, obviously. And by the time we got home, we could see that we saw the footage and we got to the house just as the first tower was falling. And from there, you know, the whole, whole scenery of the special ops and the fire service changed. Um, so were you in, you were in Brevard, 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 Brevard County, uh, not to be confused with Broward County, not, yeah, different, <laughs> different Florida neighborhood. Yes. So what did, did, uh, you guys get the team ready to go or did you, put well, we were kind up? of, we were kind of on a semi standby. Um, the space center is technically in Brevard County, although it's a federal enclave. So they had their own resources, but we were kind of said, yeah, be alert. And we also had, um, Port of Canaveral, and, and nobody knew what was going on. So it was just, you know, um, typical of, um, you know, I think one of the things that has come out of the World Trade Center incident is a little bit better long-range planning to what do we do with these weird catastrophes. So did that come out right uh, right at the same time, or was that kind of like the months and the Months years afterwards. After? You know, then we went through the anthrax scare right after that. Um, which was even worse than, you know, cause everybody who saw any kind of powder, um, was calling and everything was anthrax. Yes. These are just some of the stories that are stored away in our collective memories of that horrible day. And I thank all of the guests I've had this past year who shared their experiences. As I close this out, I'll ask you to reflect and answer the question. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? <laughs>